Brought to you by the Appleseed. It's like a regular episode. Only shorter. We call them bites. Thanks for joining us for an Appleseed Bite, a mini episode of the show. Just a single story, a few minutes long, in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill them with great storytelling. We've got a great story for you today. We want to remind you that we drop a few of these bites during the week in preparation for our Thursday full episode drop, an hour filled with stories for you and your family. Be sure to join us this Thursday for some faith stories as we're in such close proximity to Easter. Stories from the wonderful storyteller Geraldine Buckley, as well as a terrific story from our own producer, Brian Tanner, about getting close to the memory of his grandfather by preparing a musical number to perform at his grandfather's funeral. And speaking of Brian Tanner, we've got him right here in the studio. It's a pleasure to have you, Brian. Thanks for joining me. Hey, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> tune in for my story. I'm that's excited right. about it. <laughs> and uh, tell us what we're going to hear in today's Appleseed Bite. All right. Today we've got a story uh, called Highbush Cranberry Jelly. <laughs> it is by the storyteller Pete Griffin. Yeah. So, Sam, do you know what a youper is? Oh, no. You know, I, I have I have succeeded in your quizzes before, <laughs> but I'm going to fail in this one. I do not know what a youper is. So a youper, having lived in Michigan in the Lower Peninsula for a few years, uh, is a term I came to know. It's It stands for someone from the Upper Peninsula. All right. The U-P- Uper, when Got you put it together. It. Yeah. Upper peninsula er. Yeah, so exactly. that's what I am if I live in the upper peninsula. Exactly. And Got do you it. know what Upers call uh, people in the lower peninsula? I, I can't make sense out of the acronym. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, it's not an acronym. They call them trolls sometimes because they live below the bridge that connects ah. <laughs> the two places. So Pete Griffin is a youper, um, and you'll hear him talk a little bit about his, uh, his childhood growing up in the Upper Peninsula. But um, he's famous for being a storyteller who is also a U.S. forest ranger, right. uh, yeah. spending a lot of time in Alaska. And so in his stories, he combines... Uh, personal memories with natural history and biology into this uh, interesting mix, like the story we're going to hear today. I do love a Pete Griffin story, and we're going to hear one right now. Here it comes on the Appleseed. I joined a number of other folks out on the Herbert Glacier Trail just north of Juneau in early November one year. As we poked along the trail at a leisurely pace, it gave me time to take notice of the different forest types we passed through, of the low-growing plants under the forest canopy and out in the muskeg. The leaves were down, so it made the plants easier to spot, but they weren't in flower, so I had to guess at their identities. Deer cabbage, rusty menzesia, blueberry, crowberry. But what really caught my eye was a scattering of highbush cranberry, short, leafless, four to eight foot tall bushes sprinkled throughout the understory of the spruce forest. What stood out were the orange jewels of berries hanging singly and in small clusters from the bare branches like ornaments on a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. While I passed up the first couple of bushes, after seeing them regularly spaced along the trail, I had to sample one to make sure. It had been several years since I'd seen highbush cranberry. I hadn't noticed many at all around Ketchikan when I lived there, but it was fairly common along the trout streams of my youth in Upper Michigan. I pinched off one of the translucent orange berries and popped it into my mouth. I gently bit down and, whoa, gee, a rush of tart, sour juice 
My mouth waters just thinking about it. Yep, highbush cranberry, all right. I mentioned to my companions that I had seen enough to come back with a bucket. One asked me what I did with those berries. Make jelly, great jelly. He told me that a friend of his had once made a delicious pie with highbush cranberries. Unfortunately, his friend hadn't removed the seeds, and these berries are mostly seed. Now, highbush cranberry isn't a real cranberry like the bog cranberry used for sauce in the holiday season. Highbush cranberry is a viburnum, a member of the honeysuckle family. Highbush cranberry is the only viburnum that occurs in southeast Alaska that I'm aware of. It grows in moist forests, forest edges, on rocky slopes, and along streams. This bush has what's called opposite leaves. What that means is that along the stem, wherever a leaf grows out of one side of the stem, there's a similar leaf growing out of the opposite side. Highbush cranberry fruit is like a cherry, technically called a droop, which is a fruit with a pit. Each berry is about one to one and a half centimeters long, and for folks like me who don't speak metric, that's roughly between three-eighths and a half inch. It has a flattened seed. The taste is very acid or sour. But there's also a wild, tangy flavor that might be more of a smell than a taste, and it's that quality that makes it one of my favorite berries for jelly. What is also nice about the highbush cranberry, besides not having to be hunched over for hours on end picking them, is the fact that these berries will hang on to the bushes long after summer ends and often well into winter, and that's just fine with me. The berries ripen and get juicier the longer they go, and when the leaves fall, they're a lot easier to spot by birds and us berry pickers. Well, I went back to that spot with my daughter, and we spent an afternoon picking highbush cranberries. The bushes weren't concentrated, but spread out over a large area. Birds and other berry pickers had found the patch, and it took a fair amount of walking during the hour and a half we picked, but we gathered close to two quarts of berries, enough for a small batch of jelly. It's been quite some time since I've been involved in jelly making, particularly highbush cranberry, so I called an expert for advice. Mom, we picked a bunch of berries and I'm ready to make jelly, but I can't find a recipe. To her credit, she gave me the recipe off the top of her head. First, she said, get a package of Sure Gel. Then she said to follow the directions inside the package for cherry jelly. And if we didn't have enough juice for a batch, we could add apple juice to the cranberry squeezings. Well, I had a box of Sure Gel, but inside there were no directions for cherry jelly. Uh-oh. But then I looked through my Cooking Alaskan cookbook and found a recipe. First thing you need are cranberries. Okay, so far, you're supposed to heat up the cranberries with a couple of cups of water, first to a boil, then simmer for 10 minutes. You need to mash down the cranberries because they don't just turn into juice on their own. Here's the first tip I have for you. You might want to make sure the berries are covered by water. I used a potato masher and those little berries explode under pressure. I had to clean up little red cranberry spots off the stove, the kitchen counter, the refrigerator, the cupboards, and even the ceiling, not to mention my white sweatshirt. After simmering this concoction, everything needs to be strained. 
the recipe calls for several layers of cheesecloth. No luck there, but I lined my colander with coffee folders, and that worked. About a half hour later, I had close to the five cups of juice needed for jelly. Now this recipe called for pectin, not powdered sure gel, so I had to go to the store to see if I could find a bottle of pectin. More confusing was the fact that the recipe called for a half bottle of pectin, but it didn't say half of how large a bottle. Well, after a long and diligent search, I finally found liquid pectin in little foil pouches. The package said that one pouch was the equivalent of one half bottle of pectin. What, these guys don't measure things in ounces, cups, or tablespoons? So far, so good. Now, seven cups of sugar. I was really tempted to reduce the sugar, but I was warned that the exact ratio of pectin to juice to sugar was all worked out to a degree of precision that would make scientists that designed the Mars rovers envious. So maybe I'd better not tinker with the recipe. We added the sugar and brought the whole mess to an odorific boil. The second tip I have for you isn't really a tip, it's a warning. Boiling highbush cranberries causes a stink. My mother said it always reminded her of old gym socks. Anyways, we added the pectin and boiled it again for another minute. We skimmed off the foam and we poured the resulting bright red clear liquid into jelly jars. It was good to hear the lids pop when the jars cooled down enough to seal. The next morning, I spread my toast with that perfectly formed jelly, and it was just like I remembered when I was young. Highbush cranberry jelly is tart and sweet and wild at the same time with a flavor enhanced by its sharp woodsy aroma. I like to put cranberry jelly on pancakes instead of syrup. I've also had thumbprint cookies with a dollop of cranberry jelly in the middle. Pretty good stuff. Highbush cranberries hang on well into late fall or early winter, so if you're out and about some nice fall day, spend some time out in the woods on the trail of the wild highbush cranberry. Pick a bunch, make some jelly, and you can enjoy that reminder of wild places and wild things all winter long. A story from Pete Griffin about highbush cranberry jelly. What a pleasure to hear that story. My mouth is watering just a little bit, I have to say, <laughs> Brian Tanner. <laughs> well, it's amazing how um, foods are able to bring back such memories. Yeah. You know, he talks about the memories come rushing back when he tastes the jelly. Yeah. And is that happening for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking about my grandma's jelly. Out in front of her house, she had a big area of uh raspberry bushes. Yeah. It was almost like a raspberry hedge, hedge maze. As kids, we would wander up and down it and pick raspberries, but she would make the most delicious jelly with it. And then she would uh, bake homemade bread as well. Oh, and yeah. sometimes, you know, we pull out that old uh, raspberry jam recipe and, and it just reminds me of my grandma instantly. Oh, yeah. You know, these these stories about, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, you can, you can walk into the pantries in a neighborhood where people are jelly makers, jam makers, mm-hmm. and you can 
and, and you can tell what's growing in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, I remember every neighborhood, every, every house in the neighborhood had jars and jars and jars of choke cherry jelly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and our moms would send us out up and down the creek that ran through, essentially through our neighborhood, and we'd pick choke cherries. And that huh. was, you know, the, the character of a neighborhood can sometimes almost be sort of defined or discerned by what jellies in the in the in, in everybody's pantries, right? You can, and and I I love these I love these stories that sort of give us this insight. We, we interact with the natural world all the time, you know, and we tend not to stop and mark it. Yeah, uh, uh, or we tend not to know about it mm-hmm. a lot, right? And a story like this story from Pete Griffin can help us pay attention. Exactly, I love it. Brian Tanner, thanks so much for joining us for an apple seed bite. No, it's great to be here, and I'm gonna have to try some choke cherry <laughs> jam. Never tried that before. So. And of course, be sure to tune in on Thursday for an episode filled with faith stories—a story from Geraldine Buckley, a story from Brian Tanner about preparing a musical number for his grandfather's funeral. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Bain. Thanks for joining us for a bite. Brought to you by the Appleseed.